It's time to start. Let's go to him in prayer and ask him to bless our time together. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this new day that you've given to us, the Lord's Day, in which we worship the Lord Jesus Christ and our God. We pray, Father, that during our time together that uh, you would minister to our hearts and our minds and, and that we would be blessed, that we would hear your truth and that we would seek to apply your truth in our lives. Give us your grace, Father, for we need it. If we are weary, we need your strength. If we're confused, we need your enlightenment. But we know that we need you, and especially, Father, we need you to cleanse us from all the stuff in our hearts that we accumulate throughout the course of the week, and especially our sin. Father, forgive us for that. And so now as we look at this passage, which is a uh, pretty serious passage, we pray that you give us grace and understanding, and we will praise you and thank you for it all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so our passage for this week in our series is from Hebrews chapter 3, continuing on. In Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, which says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an uh, evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And as we've been doing, we're coming to the end of our series on these warnings from Scripture, just select passages from Scripture that are warnings to us, and we've been looking at them with five prevailing questions in mind. The first question, of course, to whom is the warning addressed? It gives us context for the warnings. And then the secondly, what danger is it that prompts the warning? Thirdly, what is the nature of the warning? And then we consider what response is appropriate uh, to the warning. And then finally, what are the encouragements to obey? Okay, and so with those five questions in our minds, we come to this, this last one, excuse me, this most recent one. But last week, we took the time to give some measure of detail to the context of our text from the book of Hebrews. And we concluded that the letter was written to Jewish Christians, most likely in Rome, who were entering into a pretty serious time of persecution, which had clearly unsettled them and had also dampened their enthusiasm for their newfound faith in Jesus the Christ, the fulfillment of all the promises set forth in the Old Covenant. The grand theme of this letter is to remind them and us that Jesus 
is far superior in every regard to their traditional religious system. Indeed, he is the only way to go. He is the only truth to believe. He is the only life to live. And so, we also saw that the ramifications of the Hebrews' perceived dilemma included the temptation to apostatize. And we looked at that to some extent last time. And so the author of this letter gives several warnings, each approaching the problem of apostasy with a slightly different emphasis. But together, they actually help interpret each other. We get uh, the weight of the warning and the sense of urgency in heeding it. And that is our purpose these weeks. I want us to not only see the warnings presented, but I'm hoping that we will get a grasp of the intensity and the sense of urgency they project as we see a modern, contemporary kind of outworking of, of the same issues that the Hebrews were struggling with. We also saw that the ramification, or excuse me, okay, see, I'm, I'm loopy and I'm just rereading my previous paragraph, but I will skip. There we go. You see, that's right. If this is included then in uh, the canon of sacred scripture, it is not for our entertainment. <laughs> okay. Bummer, huh? You come to Sovereign Grace, you come to Pacific Hope Church, you teach Sovereign Grace. It is not entertaining. There are lots of entertaining places to be. But that's because the Bible isn't entertainment. The book of Hebrews is not for entertainment. All right? Nor is it simply for our enlightenment. It requires a response. In the book of James, we read, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so we must take note of not only sins of commission, behaving in sinful way, but also sins of omission, failing to do what we know is right. The writer of this letter is telling the Jewish Christians, in essence, don't go back. Right? Last week, don't drift away. This week, don't fall away. Okay? Well, then what's the danger that prompts the warning? Well, the same danger that we saw last week applies to this week's text. The danger of apostasy. And I spent some time trying to persuade you that apostasy is a very real danger. And there are certain behaviors and certain attitudes that the letter seems to be telling us incline toward apostasy. And that is why it is a warning, not just information. That is why it is dangerous. There are dire and eternal consequences. So let's look at today's warning. Third question. Here it is. Take care 
brothers. Sometimes this word, take care, is translated, take heed. The New King James says, beware. The word is actually a variation of the word, the Greek word, to see. For you Greek scholars out there, it's the word blepo. Okay, to see. Uh, it is a present imperative. That is, it is a command involving a continuous action. Be seeing to it constantly. Keep a watchful eye ever open, is the idea. Be careful, brothers. Now, when we exhort someone to take care, it is because we see a very real danger. It is not simply that something might happen. It is that unless the warning is heeded, the danger likely will happen. You see, so our author says, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, may I be blunt? With the authority of Scripture, I say to you, to us, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, there are different words in the Greek language that are translated evil. This particular word is not simply referring to evil in the abstract, but evil in active opposition to the good. Okay? This is the word that is used when Satan is spoken of as the evil one. In Galatians 1, 3 to 4, we read, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That's the word. A good English translation is the word pernicious, meaning ruinous, injurious, hurtful, even deadly. Take care, brothers, lest this is what you find. But there's a bit more to the point of this. You see, the word unbelieving, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, in the salvific economy, unbelieving is part and parcel with evil. It's important for us to admit, unbelieving is part and parcel with evil. The word unbelieving could literally be rendered non-faith or anti-faith. Now, that is important to the whole tenor of the letter's treatment of apostasy, as I trust we shall see. But it is also important that we distinguish between a heart uh, in which unbelief is present and an unbelieving heart. Not necessarily the same thing. We all struggle at times with lapses of faith because, well, because we are still in the process of our sanctification. 
but we don't reject the faith. Okay? We simply struggle to understand and to interpret implications of what God's Word teaches and how to live as His children in the light of this mysterious providential world. The unbelieving heart, though, as rendered in this text, by definition, is evil. Now, what is this evil that the unbelieving heart manifests? Well, it is there in our text. Okay, it says, leading you to fall away from the living God. The non-faith heart will inevitably lead one to fall away from God. That is because it is unbelieving and likewise evil. Why is it evil? Because falling away from God is falling away from goodness, truth, and righteousness. It is falling away from the thrice holy, holy, holy God. It is the opposite of light. It is falling into the evil. So you see, when we have questions about the faith, are our questions so that we might find God's answers? So that we can more faithfully and humbly submit to Him and honor Him and glorify Him? Or are we actually questioning in order to challenge and reject God's clearly revealed truth. There's a difference, right? And we know people. Two people might ask the very same question. And in the one person, in the one case, it's a sincere question. I'm I'm not sure I understand this. What do I do with this? In the other person, it's same question, but the point is, to reject God. I'm going to justify my own attitude, uh, opinion, disposition, so that I can reject God. It's apostasy. The unbelieving heart, the unbelieving heart is non-faith. God's truth, God's will is not adequate to that heart. That heart will inevitably lead one to fall away. Okay, so in context, the writer is exhorting the professing Jewish Christians to take care, take heed, that in the presence of mounting opposition and looming persecution, they do not come to find out that they have evil, unbelieving hearts which will be demonstrated by the fact that they fall away from the living God. How can that be? How can one who has apparently seen the superiority of Jesus Christ over the types and shadows of the old covenant fall away from the living God? How can someone who has made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ apostatize? Verse three, verse, excuse me, verse thirteen tells us that if we harbor sin in our hearts, if we allow evil, unbelieving hearts, we may be hardened 
by the deceitfulness of sin. Those words are loaded, aren't they? That's a profound statement. You see, we may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The letter thus far has systematically and relentlessly demonstrated that Jesus Christ is superior to their old covenant system in every way. Brothers and sisters, you like me, when we hear people's crazy arguments about what they think is real, and then you compare it, you align it, you know, you line it up against the wording of Scripture, and you go, this is so superior to that. The world's systems, the world's philosophies, the world's thoughts that they take such stock in. I know them so well because I got started back on Facebook again, and I'm reading the memes. <laughs> and there they are. And I'm going, what? I th Yesterday, last... Now, Peggy was in bed, so I, she didn't know I did this. She would be angry with me, and now she's going to be angry with me because I'm going to tell you, and she's sitting here. But last night, when I staggered into the house late, 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 and I got, I got on my computer, I went to my Facebook page. <laughs> it's addictive. And I went there, and I read a, a, one of these little postings from, from an old, old, old high school friend way, way, way back when. And my heart... My heart was so grieved because she was a professing Christian. She was then, and she has been all of these years. All these years she makes profession of faith. But what she was mimicking in her words was the foolish, unbelieving, evil comments of our culture at large. And my heart broke for her and a bunch of my other friends from back then who were applauding her for her comments. Evil, unbelieving heart. Jesus Christ is so superior to all of that in every way. Well, that's what the Hebrews were being reminded of. How can someone who has made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ apostatized. That's it. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In verse 7, to the nation of Israel's, referring to the nation of Israel's rebellion against God in the wilderness, they are exhorted, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your father's Put me to the test. Again, in verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then in chapter 4, in verse 7, in the words already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, the readers of this letter would recognize the day of testing and the rebellion as when the nation of Israel, both at the beginning of their journey after the Exodus and at the end of their time in the Exodus, in the wilderness, were grumbling and complaining about their perceived trials and wanted to go back to Egypt. 
In those cases, they elicited God's judgment. In the wilderness, the great sin of the people is that they did not believe the promises of God. We see that later in the chapter. Look at verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Here, the temptation to return to Judaism is the result of, we see, an evil heart of unbelief. The result of that falling away from the living God, apostasy. Now, hear this. Just as we saw last week that the first step on the slippery slope toward apostasy is failing to pay close attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it, today we see that another step toward falling away from the living God is not taking care to identify an evil, unbelieving heart. You see, carelessness, like inattentiveness, is a mark of an unbeliever. How could they? Well, I would just suggest this. If they could, we could. The author of the letter had just said in verse 8, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Later in chapter 4 and verse 14, the author will say, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast. Our confession. Thus, the warnings of the book. Kenneth Wiest had this comment. The evidence of the fact that the recipient is saved is that he retains his profession of faith in Messiah under the stress of persecution, not going back to the First Testament sacrifices. The evidence that a person today is saved is that through the troubles and trials of this life, even in the face of potential or real persecution, he or she will hold fast in faith to the gospel message of our Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder, might the American church be entering into a real day of testing? Now, before we proceed with our other questions in our, in our list, I said, I said last time that I would come back to that disconcerting passage we read uh, describing the matter of apostasy in chapter 6. Okay. And let's read again verses 4 to 6. The Scriptures tell us, For it is impossible 
In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. And we have to humble ourselves and bow our knee to the sovereignty of God and His work in the salvation of individuals. But we're given some good substance here. We know from the body of Scripture, we know from the body of Scripture that a true Christian cannot lose his salvation. And I know that we are well-versed in that biblical reality. And so I don't need to defend that view right now, although I could. And you easily could. But someone might ask the question, as we consider this danger of apostasy, what do these verses mean then? Given all that we have said about the context of the letter, what I want you to notice is the description of the apostates mentioned here. And what is most significant for this question is really not what is said about them, but what is not said. Okay? They have fallen away, apostatized, after they have been enlightened. That is, they have heard the gospel and know what it is. They know who Jesus really is. And they have seen the difference between the true faith and other systems. They may have even tasted the heavenly gift. That is, they have heard about and seen the results of the blessed salvation of true Christians. And gave testimony that they liked it. They, ha they may even have given some credible evidence of regeneration. Much like the parable of the seed that was sown on rocky soil, which immediately sprung up. But since it had no root, when the sun rose, it was scorched and withered away. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. That is, because they were around Christians, they benefited and were blessed by the work of the Spirit in the lives of the saints. They experienced the blessings of associating with those who manifested the gift of the Spirit. They have observed the saints worship the living God. They have heard the believers singing praises with great joy and adoration. They perhaps even saw with their very own eyes results in the lives of some who were recipients of the mighty works of the Spirit who radically changed their lives and rescued them from lives of grave sin. You see, all of the benefits of associating with the community of the saints in the church, they tasted the goodness of God and the powers of the age to come. The first indications of the sanctifying process which will be culminated at the return of the Lord. They have been privileged to see all of this 
and have even basked in the environment of love and peace among the redeemed. All of this can happen to a person, and yet none of it makes him a Christian. There is something very significant that is missing, isn't there? It is what the author of the letter did not say about this person that makes all the difference. You see, there's no faith here. No one has ever, or, or this one, has never been granted faith. He does not believe. There is no salvation without faith. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You see, the apostate has never truly believed. The apostate does not have the divine gift of faith, and he falls away. What does our text for today call it? An evil, unbelieving heart. And so the writer warns, Take care, brothers, lest this be a description of you. For as we said last time, the result of apostasy is condemnation. Keep in mind, however, that the apostate won't necessarily know that he is apostate. Remember an early lesson in this series. It was the third week, and we looked at our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. We considered Matthew 7, 21 to 23, where our Lord said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Who are these workers of lawlessness? Well, no doubt, at least some of them were apostates. But they don't realize it. And we might wonder, how can someone apostatize and not know it? Well, it is because they do not pay close attention. They do not take care. They are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That is, they don't necessarily revert to the life of an absolute reprobate, Right? going back into a life of utter gross sinfulness. Remember here, these Hebrews were not tempted to become outright pagans. They were simply tempted to go back to a very respectable Old Covenant Judaism. Look again at chapter 5, which precedes that section in chapter 6, which we have already looked at. But that is apostasy, defecting from a true profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. 
For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There it is. There is a recipe for apostasy. Become dull of hearing. Be sloppy in your living out your faith. Be careless. Well, then what response? So here's a pressing question. How is it that we take care regarding this? How do we do that? Look at our text in verse 13. I love One of the things I love about the Scriptures is God always surprises. So surprises me. When I ask myself a question, I try to figure out my answer, and then I look at the text, I'm usually wrong. God has something else in mind. Look at verse 13. He says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. What's that? What? Come again? Author to the Hebrews, did you say that the way we take care, lest there be in us an evil, unbelieving heart, leading us to fall away from the living God, is to exhort one another every day? Wow. Brothers and sisters, seems rather counterintuitive, doesn't it? Notice what the response is not. It is not to go off to a quiet place, to be alone with God, and meditate, and contemplate, and cogitate. It is not to become introspective and find God in the wind, or the river, or the mountains, or myself. It is not to become, as a former pastor of mine used to say, a navel gazer. It is not even to be, in more, to be more engaged in evangelism or strive harder to be holy. It is not even, and I, and I say this tenderly because you know my heart for missions, but it's not even to go on mission trips to needy areas. It is to exhort one another every day. You see that? In the body of Christ, in the church of Jesus Christ, the divinely sanctioned remedy for potential damnable danger welling up in our own hearts is to be intimately engaged with one another, the community of Christ exhorting one another daily as long as it is today. Now tell me, what day is not today? It's always today, isn't it? You've heard it said, tomorrow never comes. Well, in terms of our present dispensation, that is true enough. But in the biblical timeline, we know that it will not always be today. There is an end to all of this. It is coming. 
It is coming as surely as we call this today. When the Lord returns, today will be no more. This time segment will end. The Lord will end it. And as one of my favorite musicians, Phil Kiggy, said, when the Lord ends it, that'll be it. And so we are called to exhort one another every day that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to when? The end. Yes, the end is coming. The end of this sin-saturated life is coming. The end of this cursed, groaning earth is coming. The end of evil, wickedness, violence is coming. The end of sickness, pain, suffering, persecution, trials and tribulations, even death itself is coming. Will we hold our confidence firm to the end? Will we remain faithful? Or will we be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and fall away from the living God? You see, a glaring indicator that these Hebrews were teetering on the brink of apostasy, and some already had apostatized, is that they were drifting away from the community of believers. They didn't want to be identified with the community of the true followers of Jesus Christ. That was clearly one of the marks. For the author exhorts them not to neglect meeting together as was already the habit of some of them. Look at chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. The writer says, And let us consider how to... There it is. Stir one another, or stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Those verses are loaded with relevance for our consideration today. Look at how closely they mirror our argument. In our text, we're told to exhort one another. In this text, we're told to stir up one another to love and good works. Incidentally, as a side note, that's how we exhort one another, to stir one another up to love and good works. It's not to become amateur psychologists or psychiatrists and try to solve all of our mental and emotional issues as the habit of some is, but rather to stir one another up to love and to good works. In our text, we are told to do this so that none may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In this text, we are told to do this to encourage one another. In our text, we are told to hold firm to the end. In this text, we are reminded that the day, that is the coming 
day of Christ's return and judgment according to chapter 9, verse 28, and later in this chapter, verse 37, that day is drawing near. But how is it that opportunity is afforded for the saints to do these things for one another? They do this by not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. This habit of some appears to be one of the steps on the journey to apostasy. Brothers and sisters, I will let you ponder that and its relevance to our own body here at Pacific Hope. But I think we must take note of the implications to us and our participation with one another right here. Well, then what are the encouragements to obey? Well, look once again at our text. Verse 14 tells us, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Think for just a moment with me what that means to share in Christ. Let us think as these Jewish converts must have thought in their original confidence. They remembered that the people of God were delivered from the slavery of Egypt at the Passover, the shedding of the blood of the Passover lamb. But then they learned that Jesus was the true Passover. And now we claim Christ as our Passover, our lamb without blemish and without spot who gave his life for us. They passed through the flood, uh, the Red Sea, which we are made to understand as a type of baptism according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, which says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. We claim baptism in Christ, the antitype of Israel's passage through the Red Sea and baptism of His Holy Spirit. They were led by manna from heaven and water from the rock, as the passage in 1 Corinthians goes on to explain in verses 3 and 4, which says, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. But verse 4 goes on to explain to them and us, And the rock was Christ. We eat and drink of Christ every day. They were looking for the promised land, their own blessed land after the years of slavery in Egypt. But we look for our eternal heavenly rest and that place prepared for us by our Lord Jesus Christ himself, if, our text tells us, if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I close with some words from R. Kent Hughes, which I trust are encouraging, but in a way that emboldens us to take care. Hughes says, I am a convinced Calvinist. I believe true Christians persevere. The perseverance of the saints. And I believe what the scriptures say here, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end 
the confidence we had at first. If we do not persevere, we are lost. Just as the Apostle John has so clearly explained, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Even a slight lessening of confidence is a warning. If we must hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Perseverance is not a foregone conclusion. Boy, the evangelical world needs to understand that. Perseverance is not a foregone conclusion. So the author of Hebrews next warns us today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Brothers and sisters, if we hear his voice, we must do something now. And brothers and sisters, I exhort you today and every day, as you must exhort me, take care, hold fast, and glory with me in this blessed, sweet, and so great salvation we have in our wonderful Lord and Savior, even Jesus, our King. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these words of warning from Scripture, and Lord, help us to understand and apply them so that we do in fact hold fast, but especially that we bring honor and glory to your name. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.